just wherever I'm at, I try to transform the space because that's also a misconception that people think, oh, if you put technology in a classroom, Mm -hmm. the kids are just going to learn better. No, they're not. It's about using the technology to design an experience. That's when students learn. Hi, everyone. This is Margie Chuang, and welcome to Founded by Women, a podcast about inspirational women building inspirational things. Whether they're founding companies, blazing a new career path, or reinventing themselves, I learn about what inspires women to start their own journeys, what keeps them motivated, and what it's really like to build things that bring them joy. This episode features Aura D. Tanner. Aura is the co-founder and chief learning officer at the AI Education Project, a 501c3 nonprofit centering equity and accessibility in AI education. The AI Education Project educates students, especially those disproportionately impacted by AI and automation, with the conceptual knowledge and skills they need to thrive as future workers, creators, consumers, citizens, and leaders of emerging technologies. At the AI Education Project, Aura oversees learning experience design and development, conducts pedagogical and design research, and performs advocacy work around K-12 AI literacy. Aura holds a BS and MS in physics and has 12 plus years of classroom experience as a science educator and an ed tech practitioner. She is completing her PhD in instructional technology and educational measurement at the University of South Florida, where she studies the social, cultural, and political aspects of education and technology. She has completed several fellowships, including with the Aspen Tech Policy Hub in Silicon Valley, where she researched data-driven school safety systems in Florida schools, the Alliance of Democracies and Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity in Denmark, where she created a game-based media literacy tool to teach political candidates and their staff how disinformation interferes with democratic elections, and is currently working as a visiting senior fellow with the German Marshall Fund based in Washington, D.C., on a research project that examines the implications of dark patterns, deceptive user interface designs on everyday citizens. Without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Aura D. Tanner. Aura, welcome to the show. Thank you, Margie, for having me. I'm so excited that you are here. How are you doing today? I am doing excellent. I wanted to start by asking you about how you describe yourself as working at the intersection of education, technology, policy, and research. Both your educational and your professional background are proof of this. Can you walk us through your educational journey, starting with your Bachelor of Science in Physics? From Dillard University, why did you decide to major in physics or was physics something that interested you along the way? Physics actually was not. When I was in high school, I actually wanted to be an astronaut. And so I had planned to do aeronautical engineering. And then when I looked at courses they had to take, I was just like, this looks boring. I don't want to do this. And you didn't really get in, you know, what I thought aeronautical engineering should be. Then I switched to electrical engineering. But by the time I got to college, I saw that physics was more like the overarching umbrella. Mm-hmm. for engineering or biology or chemistry. And I actually started out as a double major in physics and chemistry. But once uh-huh. I took organic <laughs> chemistry, I was like, never mind. And I just stuck with physics. But I've always had a penchant just for how things work, especially in the world around us and how they interact. So probably just a natural way for me to go. What was your experience like as a woman pursuing that hard science? Yeah, it was difficult and lonely, but I think that's 
pretty much been my path my whole life because of course there's no women in physics and definitely black women or black people for that period. But I just kind of found ways to be okay with that. Hey, this is the way it is. I also tried to flip it around and just trained myself to see it as a positive. This is an opportunity. These people have not been exposed to black people or women. So I always saw it as an opportunity to break any misconceptions that they might have. I had internships at top companies like 3M and Mayo Clinic and MIT. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was at one of the companies at an internship and it was weird because it had so been just men the entire time that they were used to going into whichever bathroom they wanted. And so I was always <laughs> bumping into men coming into the women's breast. And they're like, oh, we forgot. I'm so sorry. Yeah. There's situations like that where I'm setting the standard, whatever you thought Black women were about. Yeah. This is what they really are. When you said that there was very little women, especially Black women, did you come across another friend along the way that could be with you in solidarity or that you could talk through these times where you felt you were really lonely? No. There was one. In my bachelor's, I was at I went to an HBCU. So as I went through the program, there were a couple of other women there, but then it's a Black university. So everyone was right. Black, but there were literally like five of us going through the whole program. But just other places like getting my master's, there was another girl. She was from Asia, but we never bonded or talked or anything. She actually ended up being with all the guys and the other people because there are a lot of people from India, China, Africa. Just along the way, I did my best to fit in and kind of try to look past race. I did that a lot. That doesn't really work. I just tried to fit in and just do the work. Was there anything that you told yourself or got you through those days when you said you need to pump yourself up? I'm a huge eternal optimist. So I'm super, super positive about everything. My husband says Pollyanna. So I would just be like, hey, this is an opportunity to learn something new today, or you're going to make a difference today, or somewhere in the future down the line, someone might find out that you were here. So I just try to be very forward looking and this is an opportunity to do something different. Yeah, I try to make no excuses regardless of what the situation is. Yeah, those times that we're all feeling down, it's hard to be optimistic, but I love how you framed it as, well, how can I make this an opportunity for myself? And your professional journey is actually quite diverse in that regard of creating opportunity. And it's tied to that intersection of education, technology, policy, and research. I read that in October of 2013, you were a doctoral researcher and you developed a game called Water Gauge Warrior for high school students. Can you tell me a little bit more about that game, why you created it, and tell us about what the rules were and what the purpose of the game was? That was at the very beginning of my doctoral program, and I got a position on a National Science Foundation grant project. So I was one of the graduate researchers, and it was about using game-based learning embedded inside of eBooks to teach high school students about complex concepts in climate change. And so they had this whole fantabulous thing that came up with, hey, if we put these games that kids can play inside of these electronic books, then maybe perhaps that will help them understand climate change better. I had not designed games or anything before, but I have always been a writer ever since grade school. I try to use story as a way to teach and get information across. I think that's one of my superpowers is breaking down complex subjects through 
some creative means. And so in that game, it was basically one of the lessons or one of the things was teaching students how these gauges are able to monitor sea level rise. And so I was like, we could do a game called Water Gauge Warrior, where you're kind of fighting against time to build, because it had to do with the finances, how much it cost, and what was happening with the climate, what was happening with the level of the ocean. So it was like this big scenario. Let's just make the scenario into a game where the students are manipulating all these different parts just so they see that it's part of a system. And they use this platform to design this game and it ended up being a hit (laughs) with the students. They really got involved. They understood all these complex moving pieces and I have a quirky sense of humor. So it had this main character and he kind of made jokes, puns around climate and things like that. So the students kind of took on the role of that character and they're still using it to this day, I believe, in several counties here in Florida, where I'm based. Wow, that's awesome. So I'm not familiar with the space at all. Did you get feedback from the students directly? Were you able to sit there and I guess watch them go through the game, if that makes sense? (laughs) Yes, actually, that's all part of the game design process. There's a lot of pre-conceptualization on the front end. What is the goal of the game? What are the learning objectives? How do I map those learning objectives to core game mechanics? Because in a game, you want them doing what it is you want them to learn about. Mm -hmm. So a lot of games, they just ask you questions and it comes down to vocabulary, basically. So we had to map all of that out. Who are the characters be? What will the background be? How will they progress through this game? And as you build levels, you also want to make sure that the knowledge is building on the knowledge before. So they're increasingly coming to a greater and greater understanding. So it's all this work on the front end. Then you actually do a prototype. We did focus groups. So small groups of students first. What do you think about the design? What was the thing you liked the best? What do you think about the character? So you're getting all this feedback from them and you use that to iterate and but there were times we actually went out to classrooms and we had these observation tools and who's paying attention, who's on task, how long are they doing it? Are they replaying different things? Does it seem like they're stuck? And then uh, there's also walkthroughs where you sit with an individual student and you're literally watching what they're doing. Oh, why did you click on that? Oh, what made you go there? So you're getting all this feedback because it never works how you think it will. Right. <laughs> so you have to put it out there in the wild and test it. That sounds like a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> It is. And so how long was that process? They presented you with, okay, this is your task. And then you went through the prototype, the focus groups, watching the students interact with the game and asking them questions and delivering, I guess, the final prototype, the final design. So the grant itself was like a three-year grant. I was on it for two years. And then I ended up going on another project, which also ended up being game-based learning. But yeah, it's a really long process because you also have to coordinate with teachers the days they're going to implement it in their class. And then they can only implement it when they're teaching that topic within the whole range of topics they have to teach throughout the school year. So a lot of it depends upon the pacing of what's being taught when. It took quite a bit, but I would say just the initial to get the first version 
probably took a year. And then when the next year comes around, okay, these are new students. And so you're constantly iterating and refining and discovering new things about students. And then you think about how can I improve this to ensure they're getting even a better understanding. And then in between that, you're presenting at conferences and trying to publish papers and different things like that. So during this, you were a teacher, like you mentioned, and then the next opportunity you had also involved game-based theory. Do you feel like in your experience that it's a good way for our students to retain information, to understand what's going on, and to execute the concept you also learn by teaching too, right? Yeah, so the thing with games is it really allows the student to actually take on the role of someone they might not ever think about being, puts them inside of a scenario or a context. It allows them to test and do different things without actual real consequences. The last games I made was called Chicken Collision. It's teaching middle school students about balance and unbalanced forces by shooting chickens out of an air cannon. And that might sound weird, but it's actually something that the U.S. Air Force was doing, which gave me the idea because there's so many downed aircrafts every year due to collisions with birds, which who knew? I was like, ah, that would be an epic game. What student wouldn't want to shoot chickens out of a cannon? And so just taking real world situations and actually being able to do them, like in the real world, you're not going to be able to shoot a chicken out of a cannon. And then there's this motivation factor that games have. Students want to get to the next level. They want to see what happens. And then there's the engagement piece. And 90% of teenagers play video games. And then just situational interest is another thing. You just have this whole context. And then the research shows that students tend to persist more when they're learning content within a game than they do in just traditional settings like listening to a lecture or doing a worksheet or watching slides. There's just so many benefits to using games for learning. Yeah, super interesting. Thank you for sharing all of that. You mentioned earlier that you help to break down complex subjects. The term artificial intelligence or AI can sound intimidating. Before we dive into the AI education project, can you explain what AI actually is? Yes. So right now there is actually no agreed upon definitions in our curriculum. We have this page that shows like 20 different definitions that are being used right now. So it totally depends on who you ask, but the definition that I like to use is artificial intelligence. It's the broad concept that machines or computers have the ability to do things that we as humans would consider intelligence. That's a really broad, high-level, general, just the capability of machines and computers to think and figure things out on their own is the easiest way to break it down. What things or people inspired you to start building the AI education project? The AI education project goes back to my time when I was teaching eighth grade science. As I mentioned, my background is in physics, but when I got married and had children, I got into education. So I actually got into early childhood, taught at the preschool level. I was following my kids. It's not creepy. I know. That sounds normal to me. As a mother, it sounds normal to me. <laughs> so I taught preschool and then I taught elementary and then I taught middle school. And I actually had my son because the school I was at, there was only one eighth grade science teacher. So I ended up having to have me. When I taught high school, I taught community college. And during my time as an eighth grade science teacher, teaching at a school 
school with marginalized students. First, I saw, wow, they really have no experience with technology. My first day project I would do with my students is we're going to the library. You have 15 minutes to make an all about me PowerPoint. And then we're coming out. But that first time I did it as a new teacher, didn't check. The majority of them, and this is eighth grade, did not know how to use PowerPoint. I was just like, wait a minute, what? How are you in eighth grade and don't know how to use PowerPoint? There are just a few instances where I saw, wow, they haven't had very many experiences using technology or understanding science. And I just gave everything I could to create as many learning experiences as I could using technology with my students and putting the tools in their hands. And I just wanted to empower them. When I saw the gains they made as a result of that and actually inspired me to go back to school to get my PhD. Just seeing the power of when you use technology to create a well-designed learning experience. And so that just became my thing. Okay, what's the newest technology that's out right now? Oh, game-based learning. Oh, massive open online courses. Oh, augmented reality. Oh, virtual reality. And then eventually artificial intelligence. So that's just become my pattern. What is the latest technology? How can I inform young people about this next technology. I wanted to dig into that a little bit. So two questions. When you are in those marginalized communities and they don't have a regular computer science teacher, they don't have the resources, and you had mentioned that you helped bring that in for the students. How do you as a teacher bring in the resources so that your students could invent those games? So at the school I was at, and this is common at a lot of schools that serve. So they get funding for the government to have technology because they are under resource. The thing is that they're not being used or implemented by the teachers. So at the school I was at, every single classroom had an interactive whiteboard. They had student response systems and just all the stuff. And it was literally sitting in cabinets and teachers were still writing on whiteboards, even though they had an interactive whiteboard right next to them. And so even my grade level, it was just me and another teacher who were actually using the technology and just brought myself up to speed on how to use all of this and how to integrate it into everything I was doing. I have been in some instances where there was a middle school I was at where they had the teacher's laptop and it was a really old laptop. So I had to find ways with that one laptop, how can I create an experience for this entire class when I've done that before. And I've been in a classroom where the only thing we have is my phone. So how can I use my phone? Or they have a projector. How can I use this projector? I'm going to shine it against the wall really big and teach them how to graph that way. So Mm -hmm. whatever is there. And then it's not just always digital technology per se, because technology can be like processes as well, or just different methods. And so just wherever I'm at, I try to transform the space because that's also a misconception that people think, oh, if you put technology in a classroom, Mm -hmm. the kids are just going to learn better. No, they're not. It's about using the technology to design an experience. That's when students learn. Thank you very much for sharing that. What do you think was the deterrent for the teachers to use these interactive tools that were, like you said, sitting in a cabinet or just up on the whiteboard (laughs) and not being used? I think a lot of it is just there's this mindset out there that technology is difficult, technology is hard, it's only for certain people or a certain kind of people. I hear it all the time. Oh, I don't do well with technology, even people with their own phones. They can't do something and they wait for someone else. So I just think that pervasive mindset was over a lot of teachers. I ended up becoming a technology trainer for my district. And in my trainings, it was an interesting thing I noticed it would be like a teacher would have a question. And so I'd come over 
And they lean back for me to get on the keyboard and do whatever. And I'd be like, no, you're going to do this. And I just think building up confidence in teachers or anyone for that matter, that they can do it. It's not for the select elite group. It's for anyone. If you just break it down in a way where it's not condescending, because that's something else I found just through doing training, but more empowering, then we can see different results. I love that you became your district's technology trainer. (laughs) You said you took it upon yourself to learn, to help integrate this technology in the classroom. I had never even heard of a smart board. I'm a very self-motivated person. So I probably watched every YouTube (laughs) video ever made about a smart board. And then I am not afraid to try things. And so I would incorporate my students like, I made this thing. Let's see how it goes. It wasn't like, I am the great (laughs) all-knowing teacher. I don't put those expectations on myself. They did have professional development within the district. However, I think a lot of that focuses on the tool itself. The smart board can do this and that, and it shows you all the bells and whistles, but it doesn't look at how do I, as a kindergarten teacher, use this in my class? How do I, as a ninth grade math teacher, use that thing for my students in my class? Training was very different than the other trainings that I went through. I think I did over 150 hours of professional development in uh, technology training. So I was just trying to take every class that I could. So there's professional development opportunities. But then once you're done with those, you still have to be able to go back to your classroom and be able to implement it. What was the best invention or the most memorable invention that one of your students has made? I don't know if I would say it was an invent. I'll say an output that I thought was really cool was I was doing a unit on environmental science. And so we were just looking at consequences of different things that happen with the environment. I put all the tools out there for my students and they could come up with their own creative project. There was a group of boys that did a spoof of a movie called Fridays that has ice cube and stuff in it. And so they actually rewrote the script or a famous scene from that movie, but it was called Oil Spills on Fridays. And they use these little camcorders and it was hilarious, but you can see how they had to learn all the science and how an oil spill works. It's funny and it was comical. So that was a really cool one. And then there was another one, there was a girl who was really quiet, but I had noticed she was always writing in this book. It turns out she did like poetry and spoken word. I forgot what the popular song was at the time by Beyonce or someone, but she changed the words to talk about tsunamis and how they're formed. It was awesome and it was epic and everyone was shocked because she was quiet. That was just something I did in my classroom instead of, hey, everyone's gonna take this test. I would give them options to demonstrate their learning by using technological tools. Yeah. With that girl who was quiet, you saw a different side of her. You gave her that opportunity to express herself in the way that she wanted to express herself. And then in the process also helped the students learn. Circling back to the AI education project, on your website, it states that every student needs to learn about artificial intelligence. Why is it important for every student to learn about AI? It's actually something that's going to impact every area of their lives if they don't understand how it works. Especially for us, it's about 
the students from marginalized communities, it's almost to me like living in a matrix. You might wonder, every time I put in an application, I never ever get a call back. What's up with that? Not knowing there are algorithms that scan resumes. If you have a black sounding name, it's been proven, it automatically gets kicked out. Or if you've gone to certain colleges and universities, all women's universities or HBCUs, it's kicked out. Or if you're going to college, the colleges you actually apply for depend on the information you're seeing. There's research that shows even the ads for the types of colleges you've seen are determined by algorithms. Once again, African-American Latinx students are seeing ads for more for-profit universities or that cost more versus someone who doesn't. Or if you get into the university that you're applying for, a lot of admissions offices use algorithms and it's not necessarily based on you have this GPA, it's can your parents afford to pay full price? Because if they can, then we'll let you in because if this other student, their parents can't, we're going to have to give them a scholarship. When they get older, going to get healthcare or buy a home, if you're getting accurate information to know who to vote for in local elections or national elections, every single thing, AI is going to have a piece of it. And you might think that you're just living your life, but you're actually living in the reality that someone else made for you or being nudged to make certain decisions. And so we just want them to understand and be able to read the reality that's really there. Yeah, a lot to unpack, but yes, it is <laughs> all around us. For future generations, they are going to live in a more digitized world. And so what does the AI Education Project curriculum specifically look like? Can you give an example of a lesson or projects that students go through to apply real life in a space where they can understand the fundamental concepts of AI? So our curriculum focuses on the social, cultural, political, ethical aspects of AI. Some of the others in the space, it's more on the technical side and focuses on coding and programming and that type. But mm -hmm. we feel it's important to get a conceptual understanding first. So what is this? How does it work? What does that look like? Can I transfer what I've learned here to a new context and be able to recognize, oh, that's AI. Just being a science teacher, I feel that's really important because without conceptual understanding, you're just doing things. One example is we have a lesson on how artificial intelligence is being used in the criminal justice system. It's being used by judges to decide who gets bail and who does not. So it's pretrial risk assessment. Based on all of these different data points, it comes up with score. They're at a risk. They should not get bail. And so we have content the students go through about that, but then we give them a scenario-based discussion prompt. You are now going to write a letter or write an email to a stakeholder who's about to make a decision for someone to decide if they get bail. So we ask them right to a judge and you tell them your stance and how you feel about them using AI for their decisions or what do you think they need to know or talk to a prosecuting attorney or write a letter to a family member of someone who has been accused of a crime because of AI. So we really get them to take a real life stance. And some of the other ones were like, pretend you're a famous blogger for a national newspaper. What are five 
things high school students need to know to prepare themselves for future jobs with AI. I was just teaching a group of students with one of the programs that's using our curriculum this school year, and we use a lot of case studies. So these are real things that are happening in the real world, and we try to relate it to them. So we're talking about data in this lesson. What is data? And see what they think data is. We help them to dig in and see what it is. But a lot of the students, day one, we asked them what their favorite app was. The majority said TikTok. The case study was, here's all the data that TikTok is collecting on you. How do you feel about TikTok collecting data? What they think is data. I don't care. One of the students was like, well, I don't care. They're using my data. It helps me see stuff that I like to see. I found a pair of shoes that were awesome. That's helping me find stuff that I like. And so I was like, okay, let's look at the data that they collect. Of course, it's a screen full. And I'm like, I pulled this from their website. They are telling you this is the data. So it's not just your name, your birthday, your email address, your financial information, but they know the type of phone you have, your mobile carrier, the resolution of your screen, the size of your screen, what other apps you have downloaded on your phone, all of your contacts in your phone, all of your contacts on all of your other social media. I just start going through this list. And then one of the girls, she was like, I am deleting TikTok off my phone right now. So <laughs> just exposing them to that. But we don't just leave it there. It's what do you think they're doing with that data? And they say what they're thinking. It's just helping me to find better connections on TikTok. And I'm like, they sell it to third-party people and they can use it. Hey, I want them to buy this product. Hey, I might want to nudge them to think more positively about this candidate than someone else. Information can be used for anything and you just always see the lights go on. And then after that, for the rest of the semester, we kind of see people be more aware and cautious. What can I do about this? When you were explaining it, I thought, oh, I, I might need to take this <laughs> course. And so Aura, is the program a year-long thing? Is it like a number of courses that each student takes? Is it the school's responsibility or decision to figure out how many courses the students are supposed to go through? How does that work? The course itself is totally online. It's in a Google Classroom, which over 70% of school districts use, which is just a place to easily be able to share lessons and get feedback from students and grade them. But right now it's four modules that are basically what is AI? What can AI do? What are the impacts of AI? How does AI impact me? And then there's a final project that we call Pitch AI. The modules all have three parts, and that's an explore activity. Right off the bat, we want them to try, dive in. We're not asking any questions. We're just trying to get their brain going. One of them is this game that uses machine learning and neural networks to guess what you're drawing. You go to the website, you click play, and it'll say, draw a horse. So you start, and even before you get a few things, it starts guessing like, oh, it's a line. Oh, it's a hairpin. Oh, it's a horse. And then it goes to the next one and you only have 20 seconds. And then, hey, draw a canoe. And you start, oh, it's a banana. It's a canoe. And so we asked the kids, how do you think the computer was able to know what you were going to draw? They put all their stuff and what they think, because we just explore. We want to get them thinking about it. And then we show them it's millions of other people have attempted to draw this. And through machine learning, the computer has learned what certain things are. So then we go into the learn activity. And that's where we do the more formal teaching concepts. This is called machine learning. This is what data is. This is algorithm, those types of things, but still in a fun format. And then there's the show activities. And that's where they demonstrate their understanding. We normally try to have them do something, make something, build something. So it's more project-based, performance-based assessment. And so that's the types of things that happen through those four modules. And like I said, we really had Gen Z in mind. 
video content and memes and I'll say the persona or voice of the course is very happy and funny and quirky and there's hashtags used meaningfully and <laughs> emojis because that's how they're used to communicating with one another and it's colorful. It's not too much text. When they do things, some of the feedback will be like, ooh, ooh, let's keep going. And you'll have the hundred <laughs> emoji and the muscle emoji. Then uh, there's memes because I'm a huge meme fan. It's my daughter and my kids. But the pitch AI, that's the culminating piece where they take everything that they've learned. It's now we want you to envision how would you use AI to solve a problem in a future job or career or just social issue you care about. More divergent thinking, there's multiple options. They can be as creative as they want. And then they just film themselves talking about what the problem is, what their solution is in a three minute pitch. Students just go all out for this. And so we've got some really cool projects, but that's basically the curriculum. And a lot of it has a social justice, civil rights type bent to it, really looking at the ethics of things. That's super cool. What you're doing is amazing because like you said, your whole curriculum from the start to that ultimate AI pitch has all the components of real life and the skills you need to be creative, to be thoughtful, and to think beyond what is in front of you. You said that is in the Google Classroom. Are the majority of the people who are using it schools or students or a mixture of both? Do you give it directly to the students who are at home or is it mainly through the school? Yeah, we're mainly going through the schools because we find it works better when there's a teacher. We've done it both. Like our first pilot was in Akron, Ohio, and they had it in their system and it was students, you can take this if you want. It wasn't required or anything, but they took it and the lessons are designed to be self-guided. At that time was when everything had shut down, but they were able to go through it pretty much with no teacher assistance. And so we saw a ton of students going through it, but for the fall, and then for the summer, we did another pilot with the Upward Bound program, which is a federally funded program that helps at-risk teenagers become career ready and ready for college. But we did that kind of a hybrid. So they still did the lessons by themselves. That was a six-week summer program. But myself and one of my other co-founders, Eric Aldana, we both taught two days a week for 30-minute sessions, virtual sessions, help them connect the dots. And then they were on their own, the other two and then this fall, we're strictly going through just various teachers at schools or some adult point person. We had a woman who was a STEM director at a university, and she pushed it out to homeschool students in her state. And so she was over the Google Classroom, and then she pushed it out to them. But I think, of course, they would be working more probably at home on the assignments with their parents if they needed to. It's been very flexible, but right now you can't go to our website and just any student can sign up because mm-hmm. we do want to still refine it, test it. <laughs> and get as much feedback as possible to make the best product. So how many schools are currently using the AI education project curriculum? Right now for the fall, we capped it at 20 schools. We do have about 75 schools on our waiting list, but we just made a decision because we want to give high touch support and really talk to the teachers, talk to the students, get the feedback. And I think just with our three-person staff, we wouldn't be able to just have all these schools. So we're doing 20, but through those 20, we will be reaching 2,500 students this fall. And then we're looking to do around the same for the spring. And then we feel we will have the feedback and everything. And then we'll get the gas. We'll be expanding our staff. So significantly be able to expand for the summer and the coming fall. That's great. How has the global pandemic affected the company? Because it sounded like you were already doing things online. 
actually it helped us. Our original product was not online. It was actually lesson plans and it was to be facilitated in a face-to-face classroom with teachers. So we had been talking with teachers, we were developing these lesson plans and we're all set to go with the pilot. And then in March, they were like, we're shutting everything down. We were like, oh my gosh, what just happened? And then we'll just keep working on our lesson plans. When this is over, we'll go back to what we were doing. But then a little toward just before the school year ended, the district that we were originally going to do our pilot with reached out, hey, we need something to engage the kids. We need some online content. So we did a very quick pivot and then built everything out. And it's actually been more of a boon for us because now we're able to reach way more students than we could have even imagined. It's actually helped us to work more efficiently. The curriculum expanded tremendously what we were originally doing. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that. Like you mentioned, you have a three-person team that is actually a very diverse co-founding team. You're building your company through the lens of a woman and also through the lens of a mother. As your company continues to grow, is there anything specific that you and your team do or think about to make the workplace more diverse and inclusive? This is something we always talk about. And I'm very outspoken about these issues and they're very open-minded as well. Just where we advertise, we've written up the job descriptions, but where we advertise them. We're doing it in specific geographical locations that you might not necessarily look at. We're targeting HBCUs and these different organizations that typically, I don't think, tech companies go through to reach certain types like Black Tech Twitter. We're going to be putting it on there. I have a diverse network on LinkedIn. And so we really do make intentional efforts to make the opportunities known because there's brilliance everywhere. But then also, how are we looking at the applications. We actually did some kind of scenarios, like if you had someone that went to a college that no one's really heard of, but they've done all this amazing work, and then you have someone that has no experience, but they went to Harvard and have a 4.0. We're not just doing it based on credentials or GPA. We're doing it based on what do you bring? What experience do you have? What evidences do you have of that experience? So in the end, it's basically on your merit. And we recognize that some people might not have such a great resume, but they are fantabulous. That's what we're really looking for. And so I think we will end up doing well. Yeah, congratulations for non-founder employee hires. (laughs) That's really exciting. That's really exciting. How did you and your co-founders meet? I was doing a fellowship in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. It was a technology policy fellowship. And there was an actual AI panel that they were having. And they had these different people who were coming in to talk to us about AI. And then the project that Alex, who's the other co-founder and president, was literally the project I was thinking of doing for the summer. So I was really doing a lot of research into algorithmic bias. The more and more I studied about it, the first thing I thought about was my students. It taught in eighth grade. Whoa, they wouldn't stand a chance if they don't know about this. So there needs to be some type of policy that's it's mandatory that this AI literacy is taught at inner city schools because they're the ones who are going to be impacted most. So then he was talking about his thing. So afterwards, I went and talked to him. Like literally this morning, I was giving a pitch that I want to do this. So he was like, okay, we'll stay in touch. It was the end of the summer and I was about to go home. And he was like, hey, want to go to lunch? Even at that time, it still wasn't really clear to what degree he was doing what he was doing. But I was like, I have networks in Florida. I can connect you with those to help you with your work. And then 
I just came back to Florida and then I actually ended up quitting my job. I just started volunteering with the organization and they were listening to what I was saying and being at more and more meetings and things like that. And then they invited me like, hey, we're going to go to talk to teachers in Akron. Do you want to go? I was like, yes. And so it was like a week there. And then at the end of that week, it was just like, hey, would you like to come on board with us? You're awesome. This is amazing. You contributed so much. Yeah. That's how that happened. That's great. You saw someone who was already building something that you're interested in. It all worked out. How do you and your team get people to believe in this idea, this mission that you're a part of? I think originally we thought it would be really difficult to try to convince people. When you say artificial intelligence, people think killer robots or that's for the STEM people or technical people. But surprisingly, whenever we lay out, this is going to hurt students if we don't do something, they just get it. And they're like, how can we help? And then I think it's also because all three of us are so passionate about it. So I think when we talk about it, it draws people in. It's almost like you're getting an education, even if you didn't know it was an issue or a problem. We just break it down very simply. This is an urgent issue. And it's almost in line with what everyone wants to do. Everyone wants to help prepare our youth for the future. I think we just tap into something, but in a real way. It's not by making everyone a programmer and teaching them the code, but understanding social implications. I think everyone can relate to. So when I was first introduced to the AA Education Project, I had told you I went down a rabbit hole (laughs) and I came across the World Economic Forum that stated, in many industries and countries, the most in-demand occupations or specialties did not exist 10 or even five years ago. And the pace of change is set to accelerate. By one popular estimate, 65% of children entering primary school today will ultimately end up working in completely new job types that don't exist yet. And it made me think really hard about the AI education project, because again, your curriculum isn't about having to code and program. And those are great. Those classes are awesome. But you're coming out it in a way that's like, how is this going to affect you in the future? Because many jobs will be eliminated, but many jobs will also be created through technology. And so you're preparing these students for what is their digitized world today and then what it will be in the future because they're going to be the ones creating it or like you mentioned, the ones being affected by it. Yeah. And then it's also like we are preparing them for the jobs they want. And even though my background is in physics and technology, I love STEM, but I had a saying that I always said when I was teaching, I do not think we need to stematize everything. Everyone does not need to be an engineer. Everyone does not need to be a technologist, a scientist, a mathematician. And so in our curriculum, we actually show them this is how AI is going to impact the area you're interested in. If you're interested in fashion design, we literally show them AI is actually taking all this data about fashion trends from the last 20 years and it's being able to predict what the next trends will be. You want to be in culinary arts? AI is already being used in kitchens to flip burgers. It's using sensors to get it at the perfect temperature and know exactly when to flip it over. But it's also being used to create recipes we could have never thought of. You want to be in urban planning. This is how AI is being used. We're not doing the STEM jobs. This is any job and pretty much any job you can think of. And we have so many case studies within the curriculum. So then a student recognizes by going through this that there's some things that AI is really good at and there's things that only humans are good at. And it happens to be that 
creativity, problem solving, collaboration piece. So that takes away that fear and intimidation. Recognize, hey, even within this job, there's some things that I can still do. And we've had students that realize most of what I would be doing would be automated, like accounting. So I probably need to find something else that has to do with numbers. But then at the same time, we also, like you mentioned, jobs that don't exist. So we're introducing them to jobs that are emerging. Chatbots are being used so much. And that's when you go on a website and a thing pops up. Oh, hey, can I help you? You think you're talking to a person, but you're not. And so you start texting back and forth with this person. They're trying to see what it is that you want. But universities are starting to use those a lot as the first interaction with students. The majority of businesses are using them as well. They need people not only to program those chatbots, but there's a job called a conversation designer. So they need someone to design the conversations and the interactions that it's having with human beings. And so those chatbots have to have a persona and they have to be able to respond like it's a conversation. You can't just have a big block of text like it's a website. Who would think you would be designing conversations or data activists is another one where there's people rising up because of how data is being taken and used. Whereas we had lawyers, we see this emerging thing, people fighting to protect your data. You need to be transparent about what data you're taking and how you're using it. So we're introducing them to those emerging jobs that didn't exist in our curriculum as well. Yeah, again, such a great thing you're doing, your whole mission. Or what has your experience been like as a female founder and leader? I have an awesome team. I think the majority of the challenges I faced have come from within myself. So it's what I'm telling me what I can and cannot do based on previous experiences or just what are people going to think about me so I might not speak up or talk up, take risk or something like that. And then I always think also as a Black woman, oh, I don't want to be the angry Black woman because I could have myself or someone else say the exact same thing. But if I say it, oh, she snapped on her. So I'm always just thinking all of these things just because I know what the environment is like. Going through the fast forward accelerator was really helpful because they had a lot of just different founders and we did micro mentoring. So I think that built up my confidence a lot to just be okay with my brand and me and the way I do. What is uh, micro mentoring? Yeah. So during the fast forward accelerator and fast forward is the largest non-profit tech accelerator in the world. They take tech companies and help equip them and give them the resources to be successful. And it's normally early stage. Every week we got to meet with executives and people connected with the accelerator from different companies, BlackRock, Microsoft, and these different tech companies. And we're able to one-on-one meet with them, ask them questions about anything from growth and strategy to leadership funding. And based on their experiences, they were able to help us. We could practice our pitch with them. But really, we just had this time and we did it with three different micro mentors every week. So by the end of the program, we went through 30 something different people that we're getting advice from. That was really awesome and helpful. And then in between that, we had founder chats. So people have already went before us and they had tech nonprofits and we learned from their lessons, what they're doing. Were you able to interact with the other teams who are in the early stages of building their nonprofit tech startups? Yes. So there were nine different nonprofits in our cohort. We're also the first virtual cohort. So it was different. But yeah, we'd have different virtual events. We had circle time every week. What's going on from the last week? These are challenges I'm facing. These are celebrations I'm doing. So we could do one-on-ones. We could set up things with them, network with them. It was a great learning experience. 
So you pitched first on Fast Forward's virtual demo day. How were you feeling leading up to the event? So there were two demo days. The first one, I felt confident the day before because we had did so many practices. Everyone's encouraging as a group. All the people pitching, it was like, you got this. And after that last practice the day before, I was like, yeah. But then the day of, I was just like trying to go over to my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I forget? And I can't forget. But then the second one, it's just like, yeah, we're going to do this. I just wanted to kick things off, have a lot of energy. You did great. I was actually there the second day, and I'm sure you did great the first day as well. <laughs> I think you did Thank wonderfully. You. Yeah, it was great fun. So you said that you had lots and lots of practice runs, but <laughs> is there anything that you specifically do to prepare for those type of events, whether it's a pitch or an interview? Do you have a coach or a ritual that you follow? I don't have a ritual, but a long time ago, I don't know what Olympics it was, but someone had commented where they went into the volleyball teams of the Chinese team and the Americans. And when they went into the Chinese, it was silent and they were all doing visualizations of their different spikes and things like that. That's always stuck in my head. So anytime before I have any big thing, like I'm speaking at a conference or giving a talk, I just try to sit down and visualize what would the ultimate look like of me doing that thing. So definitely do visualization. And then I always just tell myself, they don't know what you're going to say. Like what's missing or what wasn't said. Yeah. And then I always, which they reiterated a lot in the accelerator is that everyone's rooting for you. They're supporting you. They want to see you do well. And we tend to think the opposite, like we're waiting to point their finger and laugh at you. Just try to bathe in positivity is normally what I do, but I don't have any songs, not physical songs. I'm old school hip hop. So every now and then <laughs> I might listen, run DMC, King of Rock or something. I don't know. I just get hyped. So I do that actually right before this. I turn on really loud a song on Google Home. I have a playlist and I just dance around the house. Just... <laughs> Get out all that nervous energy. Another founder who was on the show mentioned that fundraising is like training for a sport. It's physical, it's emotional, and you have to just keep going. Even when you're completely mentally and physically exhausted, you're an optimist, like you mentioned before. What keeps you going? What keeps you motivated? Whether that's continuing to grow and build the company or having to fundraise, what keeps you going? Whatever I'm involved with at the time, I really believe it's going to make a difference in the world. I just really think, hey, even if this helps one person, that's going to be awesome. And then mm -hmm. on top of that, I just love what I do. So it's just let me be the best at doing this today. So I just try to go all in, give 100. There's a scene on... I don't know. It's like some movie. I'm bad with movie titles, but it's not within me to withdraw or stop. Like as I've been going through this process, getting my PhD, it's not within me to withdraw. Quit is not within me. What made you and your team at the AA Education Project decide to go the nonprofit route? Our main thing was we charged for our curriculum, then the very audiences and communities we are trying to help but not have access. So basically defeat our very existence. We just always want to make sure that teachers have access to this content for free, like they don't have to pay for it. And we actually do care more about the impact on students' lives. Like we do want to lift their consciousness and we want to even the playing field 
we already see it happening. There's certain groups like computer science teachers, computer science students gravitate toward what we want. And so, of course, and they would always have it. But in the communities we care about the most, there aren't in general. 35% have computer science courses or the teachers who would be teaching this. And also that's impacted the design. So our curriculum, the majority are, we're focusing on humanities teachers. So English, history, language, arts. It's about equity and it's about true access, not just, hey, we have this thing, it's open to whoever. We're taking the opposite approach. We're actually taking it to them. We're not waiting for you to find us. We are going to find you and then we're going to hand it to you and then we're going to train the teachers to make sure they do it in such a way so they can get the optimal outcome. The for-profit route doesn't care about that. It's just, what's the maximum number of students in schools that you can get this to so you can raise your revenue? But we actually care about the problem and solving that problem for specific people. So it warrants us being a nonprofit. And it's to your point of wanting to help if you can just help one person, one school, and you're already doing it. If you could go back in time and start building the AI education project again, what are some things you would tell yourself didn't work? And what are some things you would tell yourself did work? And then maybe do that harder or faster <laughs> or sooner. <laughs> I guess just the things that did not work earlier on, because I've never been a founder before. And they were like, hey, we want you to be <laughs> one of the co-founders because the work you've done is so significant. Before I showed up, they had no product. They had pitch decks and they were kind of talking about this idea. But when I came on board, I actually built it and made it. Earlier on, I was still thinking employee mindset, so I didn't really step up and I was waiting for them to tell me what to do and I didn't really move on things or I could have stepped up and earlier on. I was doing a lot, but I didn't own my position and my authority. And then what did work was I was willing to. During the accelerator, I really went all out, tried to get everything I could. And I'm going to own this. My voice does matter. And here you are now, expanding your team, <laughs> expanding the offerings that you have, the curriculum you have in school. That's awesome. You are a mother, you have a family, and it's a lot of moving pieces, especially during the pandemic. How do you prioritize time right now with yourself, your company, your family? How does that work in your life? I have always been like super crazy about my time and how it's scheduled. Since I've become a founder, I've been more, I guess, just adamant about my cutoff time of when I'm working on the AI. Because before, I think everything would just blend together and it's like the eternal working, like, is this life? Is this work? So I've been very adamant, okay, this is how much I could get done today. I will revisit, unless it's something just needs to be done, it's an emergency, but cutting off and then, okay, let me focus my daughter, my husband, two of my sons, they're out of state and always communicating with them and making sure things around the house or getting out of the house to go places and talking to my daughter about her day and things like that. Just keeping things separate. I normally am pretty good about time and I'm a night owl. I heard the story on NPR about these people called short sleepers and they can get by on three to six hours of sleep and be fine. So I think that's me. I normally get around four or five hours. I wish I had that superpower. <laughs> <laughs> so do you time that via hours then or via this is my to-do list? These are the only things I'm going to do for work. And if I can get it all done, great. If I can't get it all done today, great. And then move on. Or do you do something like, okay, six hours of work today and then I'm done. 
It's kind of like a combination. I have this crazy system. <laughs> Everything that comprises of alerts on my phone, a big desk calendar, sticky notes, Google Calendar, <laughs> to-do list. But I just gauge it. Hey, these are the top three things. I try not to waste time. And I get this from my husband because he's really good with using every second of time. So if we're at the grocery store waiting in line, he has a Kindle book waiting and he's reading, driving, listening to a podcast. I normally don't watch a lot of television. I don't do a lot of social media. I'm not going to be scrolling endlessly. Email, I go through, pick out, whatever. So all those kind of time sucks. I avoid a lot of those. So I think I recoup a lot of time that way. <laughs> I normally ask about morning routine, but then you said that you're nocturnal. So do you have a nighttime wind down <laughs> routine or anything? No, in the morning, I don't know if it's a routine, but I do pray. That's one thing I always do when I get up in the morning. I always clean. So as I'm cleaning the bathroom every morning, I just kind of praying and downloading. And then I go shower, iron, get dressed, and then I'm ready to go. Yeah. I want to clarify. Do you pray while you're obsessively cleaning? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so I'm always like in the bathroom and I'm just like, okay. Yeah, it's a thing. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so similar to a company's mission statement, but on a more personal level, and I think I can guess what it is, but on a more personal <laughs> level, do you have a personal mission statement, something you strive for in your life? My personal thing is to serve my gift to the world. Whatever I can do to help people make things better through my gifts, talents, and abilities, then that is what I'm going to do. So I just look for opportunities to do good. You're doing great, Aura. It's amazing what you're doing and what you've done. Again, your professional and educational background is super diverse. What's next for the AA Education Project? We've talked about a few things, but let's distill it all into one thing. Goal is to get to 100,000 students. We do plan to build out, like right now, as I mentioned, we're doing Google Classroom, but we do plan to build our own customized platform so that students can be able to come on. They don't need a teacher. So that's in the works as well. And then we plan to expand our curriculum beyond what it is so that we can make content for specific subject areas. And so using our brand of how we do our lesson plans, now we want to do AI in English, AI in biology, AI in whatever. So those are kind of the top three things. Reaching the 100,000, build our own platform, and expand. That's exciting. So I like to wrap up these episodes with a rapid fire. Ready? Okay. <laughs> are you a morning person or a night person? Both. <laughs> Which we just learned. What is the very first thing you do when you're alone? I think a lot. I just think of what other things can I do. So you mentioned that you don't put too much time in this, but was there a show in the past that you really enjoyed watching? I like Hallmark movies. <laughs> what book have you gifted the most or revisit often? I mean, that I've actually gifted the most and read the most is the Bible, but actual book. I don't know. What is a tradition or something that you look forward to doing every year? For Chris? Even though my kids are older now, we would do this thing with their presents or gifts or just things where we put them all in different rooms. So we'd put a gift for all three of them in the bedroom, in the kitchen, in the living room, in our bedroom, and then they have to run from room to room. Sweet. That's a great idea. In the moments where you're feeling nervous or fearful, what are some things you do or say to yourself to calm down? Basically, you got this. 
let's go, <laughs> or this is not a big deal. I just talk things down, but normally it's, you got this, let's go. What have other women said or done to empower you? I've had several women actually, like, you can do anything you want to. You're a really interesting person, or you don't have to prove anything to anyone. Just do you and embrace your dopeness. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, that's a good one. To me recently, yeah. Okay, so the last question isn't a rapid fire. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listener out there that is building or thinking about building something one day? Do it and it's needed. Simple and to the point. I love it. Aura, thank you so much for being on Founded by Women and sharing your personal journey of what it's like to build a company as a woman founder. I love how proud you are and how optimistic you are about what you are building through the AI Education Project and that you are proud to say that you work at the intersection of education, technology, policy, and research because it shows us that we are capable of building all of those things in those spaces and more. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Links to everything we discussed are in the show notes on foundedbywomen.com. You can follow Aura D. Tanner on Twitter at O.D. Tanner. That's O-D-T-A-N-N-E-R. To learn more about the AI Education Project, visit AIEDU.org. And follow the AI Education Project on Twitter at AIEDU underscore O-R-G. And if you have a moment, I would love and really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us to get more amazing guests on the show and grow the podcasts. You can find the show notes and more interviews with inspirational women building inspirational things on foundedbywomen.com. Until next time, keep building what brings you joy.